I, I don't know whether you're big movie fans. It's that kind of, it's the uh, award season, I think they call it. I thought the BAFTAs were really interesting, uh, although I didn't watch it. Nothing worse than kind of, uh, yeah, I won't carry on. Um, I didn't watch the BAFTAs, but I did look at the results, and I thought the results for the film were really interesting. In first place was La La Land, uh, and in second place was I, Daniel Blake, uh, which was a really fascinating contrast. Any of you who aren't sure what that's about, well, La La Land is a kind of, it, it's being hailed as this uh, new musical, back to the days of singing in the rain and all of that kind of thing. And it's a real feel-good factor. It's a real kind of take yourself off into the, the escaping world of La La Land, which I, I haven't seen the film, but I guess it's talking about going and making it in Los Angeles as a jazz player, as a jazz musician. Uh, I know it's about jazz. I know it's about kind of singing and all that sweet, floaty, cloudy pink stuff. Everything nice. But on the other hand, what a contrast. I, Daniel Blake, uh, a kind of gritty, painful uh, view of what it means to live in our system within the structure of benefits and need. It is an incredibly powerful movie by all accounts. It is one that I do want to see. The interesting thing that I find in that is, is the way in which, at the very peak of our film categories, at, at, at the peak of the things which we look to speak to us and to entertain us, we have this massive contrast. On the one hand, we love to be entertained. We love to disappear off into a land of escape. But we cannot get away from the idea of having life reflected in front of us. We cannot get away from the idea of having to look at the reality of the world that we live in. Isn't that fascinating? We go and we pay money and we go to the movies or we buy the DVD or we download it on whatever streaming uh, program you use when it finally comes uh, onto those. We go and we spend the money to have the reality of life flashed up before us. We have to look at that. We cannot get away from really asking the challenging questions of life. In a real sense, that's what this particular chapter is all about. Just pause for a moment and lodge it in your minds as we go through this really gritty and painful chapter. We've got this uh, insistence from God that we hold up in front of us the reality of the world that we live in. That's what it's all about. It is, in a sense, it's the kind of the voice of I, Daniel Blake, speaking out, but with a difference. This chapter, probably as much as, maybe more than any other chapter, I think, in Ecclesiastes, speaks directly into some of the words that Jesus said. And we're going to look at that and see how incredibly poignant are the words of Jesus. Let's have a look as we journey through this painful chapter. The first thing that we see is 
as an overall, I think we want to look at the idea of the power of tragedy. We've kind of known that right the way through the centuries. Shakespeare knew it really well. There is an incredible power to the storytelling of tragedy. Storytelling of tragedy grips us. It takes a hold of us. It is debated endlessly. But the reality is, uh, for all of the joy and happiness in La La Land, I suspect that the issues of I, Daniel Blake, will still be talked about in another five, ten years' time. Because they are the real issues which grip us. Tragedy grabs us. The issues of, for example, the questions of motive and greed and maybe mental health are still being debated as people look through Shakespeare. Hamlet, for example. We have this insatiable need to question and there is a power to tragedy. The first thing we see is the tragedy of loss after wealth. Look at verse 1 and 2. Little cue, if you've been with us for a while, look at how it starts. I've seen another evil under the sun. So if you've been around, you've got a little, you've got a kind of pointer to where we are. We're looking under the sun. That means that we're looking purely, purely from a human point of view. We're imagining as though God isn't in the picture as we observe this situation. I've seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on mankind. It's not a light thing. God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor so that they lack nothing their hearts desire. But God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them, and strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. It's a tragedy that the, the narrator is talking about here. The idea that there's, he looks around. I want you to imagine that you're in the narrator's shoes for a moment, and he's looking around. He's observing life. With the wisdom of Solomon, he's looking around, and he has access to all sorts of people, people at the highest levels of society. And he reflects and he looks back on his life and he probably remembers certain people in his life that they've had everything. They've worked, they've toiled, they've struggled, they've worked so hard, they've got status, they've got wealth, and then one of two things happens. They either die and have no opportunity to enjoy the fruit of their labor. Or, there is some amazing tragedy, and in a moment, it is gone, and it's enjoyed by somebody else. If we want to take that into our world today, we might say, we look at maybe somebody who's, who's been involved in finance, and in the tremendous crash of a few years ago, in a day... Their status, their wealth, everything that they had has just crumbled into nothing. And you could say with absolute truth 
that their fruits are enjoyed by somebody else. (laughs) That great house that they've worked so hard to plan and to build in the Oxfordshire countryside so that they can have a home in the city and a home in the country. They've worked every hour that they've been given. They've reached partner. They've built the house. And then there's the crash, and they end up with nothing. Or alternatively, they've worked so hard in just the same way. And and right at the moment where you think that they just put their computer mouse down for the last moment and they retire with that gold carriage clock that kind of ages me doesn't it the gold carriage clock and they walk out of the office with their box file of personal bits step onto the train and go like that that is a tragedy isn't it I think sometimes when we read words like this, we can just kind of gloss over them. You know, it's repeating again. It's going over the same ground. What, what the narrator wants you to do is he wants you to get into this. He wants you to reflect on it and think about how this might impact me. Might I be somebody who in my own way might not... I don't think, I don't think any of us are currently building a huge property in Oxford, in the countryside. If you are, can we have a word at the end? We've got one or two bits we need to sort out around the place. That would be great. But we're not at that level, are we? But in our own way, we're maybe all preparing for something. We're all planning for a partic- with a particular pattern in life. And there is a, a profound tragedy when it doesn't work out the way that that person had planned for it to be, and it is enjoyed by somebody else. I think the idea of enjoyed by somebody else suggests that it's not even one of your children that enjoys it. I think that's the idea. It just goes to somebody disconnected. There is that tragedy, and he describes it in such a powerful way. He says, it is a grievous evil. Do you know what I love? There are lots of people who have a perspective on Christian faith which says that it, do you know what, if you become a Christian, everything is just, do you know what, you enter into a kind of Christian la-la land. Everything is lovely. The Bible isn't like that. The Bible speaks about the reality of life, and it says there are troubles in life and hardships in life, it is great news that the Bible doesn't hide away from those tough things. It goes on even further, and, and maybe it, I would say it makes a horrific comparison at this point. The Bible makes a horrific comparison. Uh, and I think we need to just pause for a moment and maybe explain a little bit of this. The shock of the comparison is the power of the picture. And we'll come back to that in a minute. Let's read it. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, and yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. 
It comes without meaning. It departs in darkness. And in darkness, its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice, twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place. That is a horrific comparison, isn't it? And, and we just need to pause for a minute because I think there's a few things that are really important. Number one, it's this. The Bible is not using a picture here which is flippant. The Bible is not, say, using the idea of a stillborn child as a flippant kind of picture. Look at what is being said. A man might have a hundred children. One of the consistent ideas of the Bible is the absolute preciousness of children. So when the Bible uses a picture like this, a stillborn child, it is trying to say, can you imagine the worst, the most horrific experience a terrible experience, a painful experience, even that is better. That's a massive deal that's being made there, isn't it? That, that is huge. So I just wanted to pause for a minute because I think that we might be in danger when we read something of this, of it appearing to be a little bit flippant about it. Some of us might have experienced that tragedy. And yet what it's saying here is this powerful experience, e even worse, is the tra tragedy of the lived experience than losing everything. When it says in verse 4 that this child comes without meaning, <laughs> we know that that isn't the case for us, is it? What, what that means when it talks about coming without meaning, it means that the fullness of a lived life, which brings meaning to that individual, is not experienced. The tragedy of striving and then unable to enjoy is breathtaking, according to this writer. And we might sit back and we might say, well, you know, that's, that's just the rich. That's talking about those with bags of money. But it goes on in our next little bit and it says, well, just pause a minute because neither the rich or the poor are any better, really. Look at how it unfolds. Look at verse 6 and 7. Uh, sorry, seven, uh, seven to nine. Everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. What advantage have the wise over fools? Everyone's toil is for their mouth. I was, um, do you know when you read the Bible a lot of the time, it talks about fields. 
uh, and a man has a field and all of that kind of stuff. Very often we see that. Uh, and gathering in, uh, accumulating food is a really powerful thing. Uh, and so the idea of uh, our appetite being what we can eat is, is right at the very focus. That was, that was wealth in the day of the writer. Uh, but when we think of fields, you know, our fields are really defined things, aren't they? We, we know what a field looks like. Fields in, the, in that world, they, they were patches of grass which were, or patches of land which were hard fought for. And they weren't regular shapes and you had to work around the, the shaping of the land itself and it was hard graft. So if you managed to accumulate enough to have an abundance of food, you had really worked incredibly hard. And what he says is that there, there is that possibility that the real aggressive worker might work incredibly hard for their appetite and yet never gain from it. They might have been wise in working really hard, but are they really any better than fools who sit on the corner? <laughs> That's the kind of picture. If we strive successfully as well, we're never really satisfied, are we? What's our, what's our appetite today so that we might enter into this little bit of the narrative? What's our appetite? Well, well to be honest, the, the reality is in relative, ter- in relative terms, we are not in the kind of life or death, famine kind of environment. Generally speaking, what is our appetite? It's for possessions. It's to consume. We live in a consumer culture, a culture which wants the next, a culture which looks to add to. Whether we've got five pair of shoes, there's always a sixth. Whether we've got the latest phone, there's always another one coming out. That is the culture that we live in. Uh, And what this writer is saying is, look at that. Look at it, when we, when we make that our goal, we're never satisfied. We're never satisfied. There is always the next. Isn't it striking? This was written 3,000 years ago, thereabouts. And yet, doesn't it speak incredibly powerfully to our culture today? What we own as, as value might not be food anymore, it's It's commodity. But it speaks in the same way about our appetite and our desperate need to have more. And yet our paradoxical experience that we are never satisfied. So that's the rich striving and striving. But what do the poor gain by knowing how to conduct themselves before others? What's that all about? Well, the idea there is that uh, it might be that somebody who is poor is poor because they just don't know how to behave themselves and they never keep a job. You know the story. You probably know people who, who they just don't know how to behave uh, and they never keep a job and that they're, they're really struggling. They're always struggling because they just don't know how to be. Uh, and actually what they learn to do is they learn to behave themselves. That's the idea that's behind it. They ne- learn to work out how to live in a way which helps them. 
They conduct themselves before others because they see things and their appetite is roving. But the reality of that is that's meaningless as well. Because even if there is progress, it only ends up in the problem that exists in the verses before. That we end up chasing and chasing. Do you see the paradox of life here? The thing that I find amazing is it's written so long ago and yet verse 10 and 11 speaks about now. Whatever exists has already been named. And what humanity is has been known. It's just the way we are. It's just the way we are. It is a, it's this great big mirror that we spoke about in the first couple of weeks. Chapter 6 is another mirror holding it. So it's double mirror, double-sided, this mirror, by the way. So I'm looking at it as well. It's a double-sided mirror. I'm looking at it. You're looking at it. And it's saying, this is us. This is us. This is how we are. No one can contend with someone who is stronger. You can't fight it, in other words. You can't fight it. This is always stronger than us. It will always be what we are unless we make such a radical shift. The more the words, the less the meaning. How does that profit anyone? We won't cover that. That's going back to last week a little bit. How astoundingly real is this? How amazing that biblical tragedy that's played up in front of us speaks with a similar clarity, well, actually, with a greater clarity, with a greater clarity than the words that we clamor for in our BAFTAs. Ken Loach, who was accused by a parliamentarian for what he described as a, a kind of ramble, as he received his award. Ken Loach, this, this voice that has been speaking for decades about the problems in society, and yet we still continue to talk about the problems in society because we can't fight one that's stronger than us. It's who we are. It's how we are. Where do we go with that? Because the reality is, 3,000 years later, we've still got the same problems. We've still got the same issues. I said that this, um, this spoke very clearly about some of the words that Jesus used. Let's move on to that. Because the next step is we need to look at that mirror, see who we are, and then remember verse 1. It's about being under the sun. That's what it's like when we imagine that God doesn't exist. If we imagine that there is no heaven, there is no greater perspective, if this life is all that there is, then we live on this biblical kind of hamster wheel which is just going round and round and round through every generation. Thankfully, there is more. The portrayal that we see here is spoken with pictorial clarity by Jesus. 
Let, let me read you a little section from Luke chapter 12 and verse 16. Listen to this. Think about what we've been reading and then listen to this. Luke chapter 12 and verse 16. He told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Do you know what? I, I think it's very likely that Jesus had Ecclesiastes chapter 6 or other parts of Ecclesiastes in his mind when he spoke this parable. Look at that at the end. Who will have what you have prepared for yourself? That's, that's what Ecclesiastes speaks about. And yet Jesus is saying, it isn't just about under the sun. Jesus is saying, I want you to think about that life lived where you strive continually to provide security for yourself in this world with the product of this world. I want you to think about that life and then I want you to take it on another step and see that there is going to come a moment when God is going to be saying to you, that's it. Now, enter into the next phase of your eternal existence. Your life is now demanded of you. Wow! Jesus is saying in that little parable, it is not all about under the sun. It's not. There is more. There is a perspective which continues. There is a life which is lived beyond. Now, now for some of us today, that might be what? Life beyond this life? There's more to just now? For others of us, it might be, yeah, I've heard this before. I think we need to hear it again and again and again. Because if we were able to live our lives consistently in the light of eternal life, we would be changed in life now. All of us, in ways which are to some extent appropriate, we create security for ourselves with the things of this world. Now, in one sense, there's nothing wrong with that. It is a wise thing to do, to plan and to prepare uh, and to work and to do all of those good things. It's, it's just wise. But somebody used a phrase with me years ago, which I think is really helpful, is that if we can learn to hold on with loose fingers, then we are doing well. And, and he was kind of saying... 
Yes, it's okay to plan, it's okay to provide, it's good that we do all of those things, but we haven't really got the grip on them that we think that we have. But if we, alongside that, are preparing and building eternally, then we're in a great place. Jesus goes on in this parable and He says, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you, then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Do you see the difference there? He's saying, if you build up for yourself in this life, that's fine. And if you're rich towards God, you are really secure. You are really secure. You have an eternal security. You have a spiritual reality which gives you a confidence and a peace so that your light hold of the things in this world, if for whatever reason it just disappears, it is not the crisis that it is for everybody else. I want you to imagine that the, the tragic experience that is described in this earlier chapter. Somebody who you know works incredibly hard, prepares, plans, is really wise with their money. And they come to that day where they walk out of their office and they put their box down of their personal bits out the office and they go like that. One person who goes like that, it is a tragedy. But another person who goes like that, who at the same time has been building an, an eternal security storerooms in heaven, it's tragic only for those who are left behind. That's the only people that it's tragic for. It's only tragic for you and me who look on and see the pain and feel the pain. For, the, for those who have secured an eternity in Jesus... It's just great news. It is great news. Now, I, I guess maybe for many of us here this afternoon, we're at a phase in life, you're at a phase in life, where just most of life is kind of stretching out ahead of you. And, and things like this might not seem so poignant to you. But the reality is that it is that poignant, isn't it? Because we just never know when that moment might come. <laughs> but the other thing that I would say to that is, if you think that you do have years ahead of you, let me absolutely, with all of my encouragement, say to you, you absolutely now need to be building eternal security. You need to be building eternal security. Some of you might be going through that drama of pensions. 
And, and you might be getting letters from your employer that's saying, you know, we're going to change the pension scheme and you've got to be enrolled and you, you've got to be planning for, me, for your future. You've got to be sorting out your pension. Well, that's wise, but it is nothing. <laughs> it is nothing compared to securing our eternal destiny. It is nothing. You really need to get your pension sorted. <laughs> but you really, really, really need to secure an eternity in heaven. You see this tragedy that the Bible puts up in front of us in this section? It's there for a reason. It, just like I, Daniel Blake, and all of his other kind of powerful movies that have shone a light onto society. They're there for a reason, so that we look at it and we say, I've got to do something about this. That's this chapter. It's saying I've got to do something about it. What does Jesus say in John chapter 14? He says these. These are great words. He says this. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you... Uh, I, if that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? Would I have said that if that wasn't the case? No. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. I'll be honest with you. Uh, there was a, there was a, we were listening to um, a bit of music over breakfast this morning. And uh, what's his name? Bocelli. Andreas Bocelli was singing Time to Say Goodbye. And I, I, I'm a bit kind of soft, really. Kind of really got to me. Really got emotional. Thought about that moment where you have to say goodbye to, to people that you really love. <laughs> but, wow, to know that it's safe, to know that it's okay, that eternity is secured, that is the most important thing that we can ever know. So please, in the middle of this kind of placarded, morbid chapter, Please do not let this go without doing something about it.